you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to take them and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we always have Bibles available back at the Info Hub. We'd love to give you one uh, as you leave today, so please don't hesitate to just, as you stop by there. If you don't have a Bible, uh, one for your own, let us give you a gift today and take that with you uh, this morning. Today I want to talk with you about idolatry. And if you're taking notes, you can write this down, that idols are false gods. And I'm going to use these two words interchangeably this morning. They're the same. Now, what qualifies as an idol? Uh, Here's an important definition as we begin our day today, that an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. An idol is anything that is more important to you than God. Now, when we hear the word idolatry today, you can't help but imagine a scene where primitive people are bowing down to uh, man-made statues or something. And and it's true that in the ancient world, idols were everywhere. The world was full of idols. Uh, uh, Read through the Bible and you'll gain a greater understanding of of these idols or these false gods. We'll, We'll see them, we'll find them in the Old Testament this morning. But they were in the New Testament too. And idols were worshipped, these false gods were worshipped all throughout the Greco-Roman Empire. And the Apostle Paul talks specifically about them in some of his letters in the New Testament, uh, specifically like images that he saw when he was in Athens firsthand. Uh, There was the Parthenon of Athena that stood in the city above higher than anything else uh, that could be seen. Other deities were represented in public too. There was Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. Uh, There was Ares, the god of war. There was Hephaestus, the god of craftsmanship. These gods, these false gods, were were visible to everyone, everywhere. Now, it might surprise you to find that our society today isn't much different than that of the ancient world. Our society is full of idols. And they're everywhere. And, And like cities in those days, in those ancient days, we have our own shrines in America today. We just attach different names to them. Things like the office park or the mall or the fitness center or maybe even Lucas Oil Stadium. I mean, think about it. In each place, sacrifices are made so that one might receive the blessings that are being promised. You know, I like what the writer and the pastor, uh, Tim Keller, says in his book, Counterfeit Gods. He writes, what are the gods of beauty, power, money, and achievement today? We may not physically bow before the statue of Aphrodite, but many young women today are driven into depression and eating disorders by an obsessive concern over their body image. We may not actually burn incense to Artemis, but when money and career are raised to cosmic proportions, we perform a kind of child sacrifice, neglecting family and community to achieve a higher place in business and gain more wealth and prestige. Again, idols are nothing more than false gods. It could be your job, it could be your look, it could be your sports team. An idol is anything that is more important to you than God himself. Now, in ancient times, people would go to great lengths to make sacrifices to their, to their false god in hopes that a blessing would be provided in return. And it wasn't easy. In ancient times, the gods were bloodthirsty and hard to appease. And they still are today. I mean, take money, for example. In Colossians, Paul describes the love of money and specifically greed as idolatry because Paul knew and realized that money then, even then, that money has the ability to take on divine attributes in people's lives. I mean, we talked about this a few weeks ago that money can take such a hold in your life, it can have such a grip on you, that before you know it, you'll worship it. And when we fear it might be slipping away, we'll take greater risk in order to earn more or to keep it from fading. Now there's a pretty good chance that you didn't spend any time this past week thinking about the idols that you bow down to in your lives, but Scripture gives us a greater understanding of what idol worship involves. 
Because idol worship is a challenge for every heart in this room today. In Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3, uh, the words say, Son of man, these men have set up idols in their hearts. Uh, Idols doesn't have to necessarily be a physical thing that we can see with our own eyes, but it is something in our hearts as well. And what God is saying with this verse is that the heart, the human heart, your heart and my heart, is capable of taking good things, things like a successful career or love or, or possessions, even your spouse and your kids, and turning those things into the ultimate things of your life. That our hearts can easily be misled to the point where we'll take just about anything and make it central to our lives. And when this happens, when we start looking to things, things like, start looking to things around us for things like security and significance, the problem is that anytime anything like this becomes more important to you than God, it becomes an idol. And idols are nothing more than false gods. And if you're taking notes again, you can write this down. False gods promise what only the true God provides. False gods promise what only the true God can provide. You know, it's no wonder that the first of the Ten Commandments starts this way in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. The first commandment says, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, The first command that God laid out before his people. And then verse 4 continues, you shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything. In heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below, you shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am what? I am a jealous God. Because the God of heaven is selfish for our attention. He's selfish for our affection. And these verses suggest that just about anything in your life can become an idol for you. And most of us are willing to believe and go there that something like money can become an idol and power can become an idol and even something like sex can become an idol. But it's more than that because an idol is anything that is more important to you than God. And so it's anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Uh, It's anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. Uh, An idol is anything that becomes central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Idols can take such dominant control in your life that you'll spend most of your passion and your energy on it. You'll overinvest financially and emotionally in it. You won't even give it a second thought. An An idol can include your family or your career or making money, its achievement or success, its social standing. It can be a romantic relationship. It can be the desperate approval of others. You can make an idol out of your beauty or your brain, a great political or social cause. An idol is whatever you look at and you say, if I have that, then I will finally have something. I'll know I'll have value. If I have that, then I can certainly find significance and value in my life. And if you've ever felt that way about anything but God before, it's idolatry. Now, the Bible sometimes speaks of idols using a marital metaphor. How so? The the Bible says that God should be the true love of our life, the first love, the the great true spouse for us. And when we desire anything other than God, we commit spiritual adultery. That things like money and success or your image are like these false lovers that make you feel worthwhile and they can captivate your thoughts and lure you into thinking that they can provide love and value for you. Now, you might think, that we live in a sophisticated, well-advanced society today, but we're really not that much different than the people who were living two and even 3,000 years ago. Because there are idols all around us, and they still have the same power and influence over us today as they did 3,000 years ago. And I think the sad reality is this, that these false gods all around us, affecting everyone, they're getting us nowhere real fast. 
Because false God's promise what only the true God provides. And in challenging times like these, I think it's becoming more and more apparent that people are lost and they're struggling looking for hope, but they're finding themselves in despair. And I'd be willing to believe that that includes some of you here today. But it doesn't have to be this way. And I know that at least for some of you, you want something different for your life. You want God to be at the very center, the very core of who you are. And so the question is, where do you go from here? Uh, What steps do you take in order uh, to move this place where you're removing yourself from the destructive influence of these false gods in your life? The answer is this. You must turn back to the God of heaven. You must turn back to God with all of your heart and with all of your life and and see the God who has revealed himself not only to Moses in a place called Mount Sinai, but the same God who went to Calvary and died on the cross for us. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I promise you that if you find him and embrace him, he will give you all that you would ever need or possibly need in this world. 1 Kings chapter 18 As I mentioned already, the ancient world was full of these idols and false gods. Uh, There were gods like Marduk, not to be uh, confused with Marmaduke, the uh, cartoon character, but Marduk, who was the storm god. Uh, Shamash was the god of the sun. Molech was the god of the underworld. Uh, There were so many gods, and there were major gods, and there were minor gods, and each god had their own specialty. But with all of these gods, no one knew who to worship. And, And so many people, including the Israelites, would just embrace them all. And by the time we get to 1 Kings 18, we encounter Elijah and the Israelites. And again, the Israelites, God's people, they were caught up into all of this idolatry. And in case you missed it last week, I want to catch you up on a little bit of the story. Now, Elijah was a man of God. He was called by God to go and confront the evil king Ahab. Now, Ahab was married to this nasty woman by the name of Jezebel. She was a wicked, uh, she was bad news. And the Bible tells us that Ahab was the 19th consecutive evil king in Israel. But not only was he evil, he he was the worst of them all. Uh, He was the worst of them all. He did more evil in the eyes of God than any before. And the worst thing that he did was to lead the people farther away from God, even encouraging them to turn to these false gods, gods like Baal and Asherah. Uh, Baal was the god of fire. He was the god of the earth. And Asherah was kind of his shack up honey in another world kind of a god. But these false gods promised things like, if you worship us, we'll give you good crops. Or if you worship us, we'll make you prosperous. And we'll give you a prosperous life. And again, that's what false gods do. They promise what only the true God of heaven can provide. And so God raised up Elijah and sent him to confront this evil king Ahab. And Elijah's message was pretty bold and clear. He's like, Ahab, you a bad man, you know, and God sent me to tell you that it ain't going to rain for a long time. And, and that's exactly what happened. It didn't rain for years and the land experienced devastating drought and everything was dying, including people. And so Elijah became one of Israel's most wanted. Uh, Ahab put out some bounty for his life, but in order to spare his life, God sent Elijah out into the wilderness. He sent him into hiding to this place called the Kareth Ravine. And as we discovered last week, the word Kareth means to be cut off because he was literally cut off from everyone else. He was in this ravine during this drought, maybe even this famine. It's these devastating times. He's isolated from absolutely everyone. And so this is a challenging time in Elijah's life. I mean, he's alone. He's running for his life. He's trying to survive in this ravine during a drought. And I think he's probably wondering what's God up to. Like, what part am I playing in all this? Why the pain for me? Why the isolation for me? But as we discovered last week, God is a God who takes advantage of every season of our lives. There is no season that we go through 
where God isn't using to look that, or isn't looking to that moment to try and make us something greater, including the difficult ones. And this was a time of pain for Elijah. Now, as Josh stated last week, and I think Josh just did a great job with this message last week, our pain is never pointless. The pain that you have faced in your life or that you're facing right now is not pointless. Again, God is using every bit of it. He's always at work. And even though this was a rough time in Elijah's life, God was working and he was providing and he gave Elijah the food and he gave him the water uh, that he needed every day. And so this was a time of preparation. He's raising Elijah up for these greater things. And eventually God told Elijah to go to Zarephath. And when he got to Zarephath, he met this widow and the widow provided with food and the water that he needed. And then her son died and God used Elijah to raise her son from the dead that he was even using all of this uh, this pain that Elijah was experiencing to prepare him for something greater, including about what's, or what's about to happen next. So remember, Elijah is a wanted man. You know, Ahab wanted to kill him. That's why he ran in the first place. And now God, after this time of preparation and pain, is sending him back into Ahab's presence because he's got a task, a mission for him. Now, it's worth noting that it's been about three years, three years of devastating drought in the land of Israel when Elijah returns in 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 17. Here's what it says. When he saw Elijah, and this is from the perspective of Ahab, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now the word troubler here is also translated snake or viper, so he's not really excited to see him. Elijah responds, I have not made trouble for Israel, he replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands and you have followed the Baals. So Elijah is confronting the fact that the people of Israel are absolutely infatuated with these idols, these false gods. And look at his exact words. Troubler? Like, who are you calling troubler, Ahab? You have abandoned the Lord's commands. You have brought this pain on yourself. Why else do you think you have trouble? You've turned from God. You've turned to these other things and you've led these people in the same direction. You've turned from his faithfulness. You've turned from his provision. Do you think it's any wonder you are experiencing the frustration and the pain and this dry season in your life right now? Now, there are a couple of words I think worth noting as we look at this story today. These aren't in your notes, but you can write them down if you want. You might know these words already. Uh, The first is the word monotheism. Uh, The prefix, uh, prefix mono means one. It means singular. Theism means gods. And so monotheism means belief in one God. As Christians, uh, we are monotheistic. We believe in one God, the God of heaven. But then there's also the word polytheism. Now, the prefix poly means many. It's the belief in many gods or, or multiple gods. Now, if you're a Christian, you're quick to say, well, I'm monotheistic. You know, I believe in God. I believe in the one true God of heaven. But I think that even when we claim that, I think we're all guilty in many ways of living polytheistic kind of lives because we believe in God, but in reality, we worship and we serve many false gods. Now, what are these false gods that we serve today? Well, in many cases, it's, it's the popular things. It's things like money. It's things like sex, and it's things like power. You can make an idol out of any of these, but there are others. You can make an idol out of romantic love. Romantic love can be such a desire in your life that it has intense power over you to the point that you'll allow it to control you, to dominate you. Uh, You'll let it get to the place where it will consume your thoughts. Uh, This may mean allowing someone to exploit you or to abuse you if necessary. 
It can control you in many different ways. Uh, it, can, it, it can get us to this point where we maintain this fantasy that unless we find our true soulmate in this world, that something will go missing in our lives and will never be fulfilled. And if we don't find it, we'll always live with hurt. We'll always live with emptiness. For many, the seductive power of money is a great idol. Money is one of the most common idols there is. It has the ability to take hold of your heart uh, and to confuse everything that's happening around you. It can control your anxieties. It can control your great lust. It has enough power to cause you to fix your entire life around it. It's why even an overwhelming majority of Christian people, they refuse to tithe or to give to their church because they're trapped by the seductive power and influence of the God of money. It's a false God. Success and power can be an idol. Uh, Take the words of Madonna from a Vanity Fair interview. Here's what she says. I have an iron will, and all of my will has always been to conquer some horrible feeling of inadequacy. My drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre, And that is always pushing me, pushing me. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended and it probably never will. I mean, for Madonna, this drive for success and power is like a drug that keeps wearing off. It's an idol. She's admitted to that. It's something that she's willing to serve. She's hanging on to the hopes of her false God and that it will continue delivering on its so-called promises. Your family and your children can become an idol for you. Now, I know that seems crazy. I know that it seems hard to believe because our family, our children should be a priority, but not the first priority. That place is reserved for God. Even politics can become an idol for you. I mean, when you look to political leaders or political voices and you begin to treat them like they are the messiahs of this day, they become an idol. And we quickly embrace their policies. We quickly embrace their political ideas to the point that it almost becomes a doctrine for us. Your political activism can become a false religion. One pastor said it this way, another sign of idolatry in our politics is when opponents are not considered to be simply mistaken, but to be evil. When you make your political philosophy the saving faith of this world, it has become for you an idol. Because idols are anything more important to you than God, and they promise what only the true God of heaven provides. And so Elijah's stepping into this complicated, polytheistic culture where he makes this prophetic statement, and he looks at all the people of Israel, and he sees them wavering back and forth, and with the authority of God on him, he says to the people of Israel to quit wavering. And then, uh, well, let's just look at this, uh, beginning in verse 19, and we're going to read a bunch of verses here, but I really want you to catch the narrative of this story because it's such a great story. Verse 19, Elijah says, Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. That's a big table, big table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. How many? 850 total. Elijah went before the people and he said, How long... Now, again, there's a great crowd of people, not only the prophets of Baal and Asherah, but also a great crowd from Israel that have gathered from all over the place. It's like this big stadium setting. And here's the question that Elijah asked them. How long will you waver between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing. Again, notice this direct question. People of Israel, how long will you continue to waver between two different opinions? And then he says, make up your mind. Just make up your mind. If it's God you want, then you follow him. But if it's Baal that you want, please just follow Baal. 
quit wavering between two different opinions. If it's Baal for you, choose Baal. Just make up your mind who you want. I was wondering what Elijah would say to us today. If he could be here this morning, I, I think he might say something like this. You, you, you people, you've all got a problem, uh, including me. We've all got a problem. We all have this void in our life, and we, we try and fill it with so many different things. But your problem, my problem, it, it's our problem. We're responsible for it all. Because here's the thing. You want, Elijah might say, you want the benefits of heaven. You, you want the get-out-of-hell card. You want God to bless your life and to make it easier for you. But you don't want his commands. Or at least you want to pick and choose from the commands that you enjoy or don't enjoy. I, I think Elijah would say this to us. Quit wavering. Quit wavering between two different opinions. Quit being a so-called Christian for an hour or so on Sunday morning only to walk back into your real life. I think he'd, quit, he'd say quit opening your hand to all of the benefits that God uh, is wanting to give to you without looking to make a single sacrifice in your life. Because here's the thing. God never intended to be simply a resource for you. He doesn't stand for that. Again, he's a jealous God. He, doesn't, he, he never intended to be a resource for us. He, he won't settle for simply being another app on your iPhone, all right, or on any phone for that matter. And that's the point Elijah's trying to make with the Israelites. He's saying, quit being one foot in, one foot out. Just make up your mind what you want. Choose your side. Whatever it takes, choose your God. And if it needs to be bail for you, then just go with it. And best of luck in that. I mean, if it's possessions and accumulation of stuff, then by all means, just make it your God. Accumulate all you can get. Run up the credit cards. You know, put, quit putting a few dollars in the offering bag. Don't be one foot in and one foot out of time. Just go ahead and make it your God. Just go all in. Uh, if it's image for you, then just let it all be about image. You know, quit wasting time on your family or the church. Just get to the gym and, and get there all the time and pay big dollars for clothes and food and programs. Get things lifted and tucked. You know, do whatever you got to do. Just make it all about image, but just choose one. Choose the side that you want. You know, quit going both ways. Quit wavering. Just get ahead and make it about something else. Make it all about Baal if you want to. Just follow him. Quit wavering. Make it all about love or politics or money. Make it all about power. If that's what you want for your life, then go for it. But then I think Elijah would say, but if anything but God is not enough for you, if Jesus Christ is the absolute true desire of your heart, then quit wavering. Surrender your all to Jesus Christ. Take up your cross and follow Him with everything that you are. Serve Him with all of your heart. I think the words of Martin Luther are so true. He says, whatever your soul clings to and relies upon, that is your God. You know, anything more important to you than God, the God of heaven, is your God. Which God is it that is continually fighting for the central place in your heart? So Elijah said to these people, quit wavering, just choose. The tension is building here. Uh, Something's about to happen. And a large crowd of Israelites gathers together around Elijah. Now, God has been preparing Elijah for this moment. And with all of the people watching, Elijah begins to give some instructions. Let's pick it up in verse 22. It says, then Elijah said to them, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left. But Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let them choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on the wood but not set fire to it. Then here, what's what we're going to do. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord, Yahweh, the God who answers by fire, he's God. Then all the people said, hey, what you say is good. 
So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first. Since there are so many of you, call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given them and prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Now remember, all of Israel, a great crowd of Israel has gathered in this place. So, so, so they took the bull, they prepared it, and they danced around the altar. Uh, uh, lost my place here. Uh, verse 27, at, at noon, Elijah began to taunt them. I love that. I love the sarcasm right here, even in the middle of 1 Kings. He taunted them. They've, they've been doing this for three hours. Shout louder, he said. Come on, surely he's your God. You know, perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. I mean, you can feel the sarcasm here. Verse 28, so they shouted louder and they slashed themselves with swords and spears as was their custom until their blood flowed. And midday passed and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response and no one answered and no one paid attention. I mean, they shouted and they danced all day long and they cut themselves and they did whatever it took. Now, here's the thing. You might not be willing to dance for the false gods in your life. But some of you here today are so consumed with the possibility that your false God will eventually deliver on its promises that you've given everything and even years to it. And you've given time and you've given energy and you've given uh, money and you've lost a marriage and maybe you've lost children and you've lost your reputation or even your integrity because false gods will tease you with their pleasure, but they will never come through on the promises that they offer. Verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come here to me. And they came to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which is in ruins. Pay attention to these words because they're they're great words. Verse 31, Elijah took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come saying, your name shall be Israel. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seas of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bowl into pieces and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, fill four large jars with water and poured it on the offering and on the wood. Again, he's just teasing them. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. And the water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. Now, here's what I like. Try and put yourself in the shoes of of someone in the crowd for a moment. Because maybe there's someone in the crowd and they've turned their back on God and they've turned to these false promises, these false gods, and they're looking back now on these last few years of devastation and letdown and disappointment and they are realizing how all of their hope is now God, gone. I mean, they're recognizing the letdown uh, in their life and they're recognizing how much they've lost because maybe some have lost a spouse to dehydration and maybe some lost children to malnutrition. I mean, they've turned it all over to Baal and in this moment, they are furious as they now realize that the God of Baal cannot deliver on on his promises. But maybe in this moment, their heart is beginning to change is they look to Elijah and they recall the great promises of the God of heaven. And now they are anxious and holding out hope that in this moment, God will respond. Verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are the God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Verse 37, Answer me, O Lord. Answer me so that these people will know that you, O Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. I love the words of Elijah here. Answer me, God. 
Show yourself to these people right now. I'm laying it all out on the line. But show these people how you can turn their hearts back to you once again. Bring them back to you, God. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up all of the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. I like what a 17th century pastor said. He said it like this. Though few will own it, nothing is more common. If we think of our soul as a house, idols are set up in every room, in every faculty. I don't know what it is for you, but I know that my security can be a false god for me. I know that my desire to please everyone and to have no enemies can become like a god for me. I know that even my wife and my children and their well-being and their success and their health in this world can even become like a false god for me. You know, we are so quick to prefer our wisdom over God's wisdom. We are so quick to prefer our desires to God's. We prefer our reputation over God's honor. You know, idols are everywhere and they are fighting for control for your heart and for your life. And unfortunately for some of you this morning, they're winning. I'm going to invite the band to come back up. We're going to have a great time of worship as we close this morning. But I want to close with you first by asking this question. Could there be hope? Could there be hope of change even here today? You know, the hope that we need is the hope that the Israelites rediscovered on this day at Mount Carmel. And and for those of you uh, that want to turn from the idol or from the false god in your life this morning, uh, you must realize this. As motivated as you are this morning, the idol of your life, the false god in your life, cannot be simply removed, but it has to be replaced. The idol of your life cannot simply be removed. It has to be replaced. If you try and uproot an idol, something will grow back in its place to fill that void, but it can be replaced. By what? By God himself. By more of God. Uh, But this is more than simply believing in him or believing in his existence. What you need is a living encounter with God. What you need this morning is renewal with God. You know, idolatry doesn't happen when we fail to obey God. You know, it isn't, it it instead is when we set our whole heart and we set our whole life on anything but God. And so removing the idol or the idols from your life is more than willpower. Uh, It's more than repentance, as awesome as repentance is. But it's what Paul described in his letter to the Colossians. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3, he says, Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Because Jesus Christ has already died and risen from the dead. For those of you that call on his name, since then, you have already been raised with Christ, set. And that word set's a powerful word. I was reading about it this morning. It means to seek something with such desire and passion that you want to possess it and possess every single bit of it. Paul says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden 
with Christ. Meaning God's desire for you as Jesus returns is to bring you to his absolute fulfillment with your life and with your salvation. Your life hidden with God means appreciating and rejoicing and recognizing everything that God has done for you. And when you do that, your prayers will change. And when you do that, even your worship can be different this morning. It's Jesus becoming more and more appealing to you than anything else in this world. It's Jesus becoming more attractive to you than anything this world could possibly try and offer. Is that what you want? God, at the center of your life today, nothing can satisfy you the way that Jesus can. I pray that you might want to come back to him today. Would you bow your heads with me? As we bow our heads today... I want to ask you this question. Are you wavering this morning? Do you have an idol or a false god competing for space in your heart today? If you've answered yes to that, you know, you can pray, yes, Lord, there are things in my life that are not honoring to you. I confess. You fill in the blank. What is it for you today? Say it before God. pray, God, I want to repent of the sin of idolatry this morning. I want to quit wavering. I want to focus my heart and my life on you, God. Uh, If you're repenting of something this morning, just as a way of acknowledging that, as a way of confessing this before God, just slip your hand up wherever you are today. Nobody's looking around. You're just saying something is fighting for her, has taken the place of God in my life, and I'm acknowledging that with my hand today. Thank you for those hands. Thank you for that commitment. We can pray, God, we we pray humbly that you would forgive us from turning from you. Forgive us from bowing to other gods. And we pray that you would draw us closer to you today. And God, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see our sin and how it breaks your heart. And that we would realize this, we can't do this on our own. We can't just pluck these idols out of our lives and expect the desire to go away. These idols, these false gods of our lives, they must be replaced and replaced only by you, more of you, God. As you revealed yourself on Mount Carmel, I pray that you would reveal yourself here in hearts and lives today. And as we continue praying, I know there are some of you here this morning and you know who Jesus is, but you don't really know him. And you're a good person and you come to church once in a while and you believe some things about Jesus, but not much has changed in your life. And you know and you're realizing this morning that you're not seeking God and you're not praying and God hasn't changed the way you handle money or possessions or anger or lust and you call yourself a Christian but you realize you are wavering. And so this question is for you. What would it mean for you to quit wavering today? What would it mean to mark this day? What could your life look like if you were willing to surrender it all to Jesus? to no longer be a sort of kind of Christian, but to set your heart fully on the things of Christ. If that's you, if that's where you are today, you can pray, Lord Jesus, take all of me. Forgive me and take all of me today. Others of you are here and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You don't know what it means to have your life hidden with Christ. Because while he died, you have never asked him to be your Lord and Savior. You know, it's impossible to find your way back to God outside of Jesus. And maybe you've been working hard and trying a little bit of everything with no luck. It's impossible. You can't work your own way back to God, but that is why God became one of us. And that's why he sent Jesus. And Jesus 
lived for us and he died for the forgiveness of your sin and mine. And that's why the Bible says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And some of you are here today and you're here only to make that decision final in your life and you are ready to receive Christ's forgiveness and you are ready for the new life that only Jesus Christ can offer and you are ready to be changed forever on this day. If this is you, then your prayer today is, Jesus, save me. Jesus, forgive me. Be the Lord of my life. If that's your prayer today, would you just slip your hand up wherever you are? No one's looking around. You don't have to be ashamed in that. Thank you for this hand there and one over on the side. You're just making that commitment that I need Jesus. I need him to be the Lord of my life. You can pray, Jesus, save me. Jesus, forgive me. Be the Lord of my life. Heavenly Father, we are nothing without you. And we need a Savior. And we have him in Jesus. And we believe that he is the Son of God who came and died so that we can find our way back to the one true God. You are the only one worth sitting on the throne of our lives. And we claim this and shout this today in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord.